Good morning. On a Sunday morning, last November, a group of a little over 30 people gathered in a church much like this one, First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, Texas. At 11.20 a.m., 26-year-old Devin Nelly drove up to the church, exited his car, and began firing an automatic weapon. He then entered into the church and continued to fire at everyone inside the church. After Kelly exited from the church, a local resident fired at him. He got into his car and tried to get away, but the local resident hitched a ride and followed him. Kelly ran his car into a ditch and later just decided to shoot himself to death. In all, he had killed 26 members of that church, given that there was no way to escape. Their ages ranged from 77 years old to 18 months. His intended victim was his mother-in-law who attended the church, but ironically, she didn't attend the service that morning. Just a month earlier, in the evening of October 8, 2017, another tragedy struck. This one was a natural disaster called the Tubbs Fire. The Tubbs Fire was the most destructive fire in the history of Northern California, burning parts of Napa, Sonoma, and Lake Counties. The wind-driven fire spread so quickly that many people did not have a chance to escape their flame-engulfed homes or their cars. Two dozen people were killed in that fire. It burned 37,000 acres, and burned down over 2,800 homes in the city of Santa Rosa. Gwen and I have seen the damage. The damage to Santa Rosa was over $1.2 billion. How should we react to such tragic deaths and calamities? Should we be enraged by the evil of the murderer, Devin Kelly? Should we offer condolences to the family of the victims? Should we thank God that we weren't in Texas or Santa Rosa at the time of these tragedies? Perhaps. But we will see that Jesus reacts quite differently than we would expect. Imagine, Jesus is walking through modern-day Texas. He's speaking to a crowd, and some of the people there present tell him about the slaughter of 26 people while they were worshiping at First Baptist Church at Sutherland Springs, Texas. The people expect Jesus to express outrage towards this murder and this atrocity. Or maybe they expect him to express his sympathy to the families of the victims. But instead, Jesus says this. Do you think these Texans were worse sinners than other Texans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And while the listeners are still in shock by the words of Jesus, he goes on to say this. Or those two dozen people who were killed by the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa, do you think they were worse offenders than all other Californians? No, I tell you, but unless you repent... 
you will all likewise perish. In our passage today, we will see Jesus make this statement concerning similar tragedies that occurred in his day. We will see that Jesus is not at all surprised by the evil in this world or the tragedies of this fallen world that result in death. Instead, he issues a wake-up call. He issues a wake-up call. He reminds his listeners of three important facts. The first important fact is that judgment and death is coming. Judgment is coming. The second important fact is that unless we repent, we will perish in that judgment. Unless we repent, we will perish in that judgment. And third, true repentance bears fruit. True repentance bears fruit. In short, our message today is judgment is coming. Repent and bear fruit. The death that accompanies sin comes for us all. Therefore, while there is still time, we must forsake sin, turns toward God, and show that this change is sincere. Bear fruit that, that proves your repentance in the faith of God's coming wrath against sin. Judgment is coming. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Please read with me Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. You'll find that in, on page 872 of the Bibles in front of in your pews. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, on page 872. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Keep your place there because we'll read on later, but let's give some background. Apparently, Roman troops had entered into the temple at Jerusalem. On the orders of Pontius Pilate, they had slaughtered a group of presumed Galilean rebels who were making sacrifices in the temple. Pilate was a very vicious and brutal man, and he took an opportunity to catch these rebels in his home territory of Jerusalem. Now, this murder in the temple was just a horrible atrocity. I'm sure the people expected Jesus to react to this and express outrage at this affront. But he doesn't. He goes on to add of another tragedy, one where a seemingly random accident. A tower had collapsed in Jerusalem and killing all 18 of the workers working on the tower. Now, the attitude that Jesus has towards these tragedies is a lot different than I would have expected had I, when I came to this passage. So many of us would be filled with self-righteous 
indignation, a desire for revenge, perhaps. Others would be relieved we weren't victims. I would have expected loving Jesus to offer condolence to the families of the victims and a very holy prayer for them. But he doesn't do that. What he does say is shocking. Unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. He says it twice for emphasis. So the first point Jesus is making here is judgment is coming for us all. The people listening to Jesus had a perspective that saw misfortune as a sign of God's disfavor. But Jesus corrects that perspective and points out that those who died were no worse sinners than the people in his audience. Jesus was well aware of the problem of universal sin and the death and destruction that results from sin. He knew that, quote, all have sinned, Romans 3.23. And he knew that, quote, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6. 23. Jesus knew that his mission on earth was to save mankind from the disastrous consequences of sin. He was not surprised by these tragedies at all. And what Jesus wants his hearers and us to learn from these tragedies is that God judges sin and that we are all sinners. News of Disasters like this and tragedies ought to remind us of our mortality and the fact that death is God's judgment upon sin. Death spreads to all men because all men sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Even nature and the ground itself was cursed because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Hence, we have fires, earthquakes, hurricanes, and other, quote, natural disasters. And as a result of sin, we must all someday die. And after death comes God's judgment. Hebrews 9, verse 27. John Piper summarizes the first lesson we see here in Luke 13 very well when he says this. Don't be amazed that sinful humans perish. Instead, be amazed that you haven't perished already. Point number one. The second point that Jesus makes is this. Since judgment is coming, repent. Repent. Jesus did not come just to point out God's judgment. He came to prevent us from perishing in that judgment. He came to call men to repentance. The first words of Jesus in his first sermon were identical to those of his forerunner, John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17 and Matthew 3, 2. And in fact, the first words that he gave his disciples to preach when they were sent forth was, Repent. We see that in Mark chapter 6, verse 12. Repentance was what Jesus was calling men to do. But what is repentance? The Greek word metanoia literally means 
a change of mind, especially a change of mind about one's past life of sin and your future direction in life. Repentance means turning to God for the mercy he offers for our sin through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus saved us by dying in our place on the cross and rising in power from the grave. Therefore, as it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Christians will not be saved from death, but from God's judgment and eternal condemnation that follows death, that is, eternal punishment in hell. God will evaluate the lives of a Christian based on the life of Christ. That's why Paul tells us in Rome, Romans chapter 8, verse 11, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Repentance is turning from sin to God, from guilt to grace, from death to eternal life, and from unbelief to belief and faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. We see this in his parting message to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Paul claims that his message to them for the last three years had always been this. Quote, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how Paul links those together? Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he summarizes his preaching there for the last three years. So repentance means we turn from self-reliance and rebellion against God and trust in the power of God on our behalf. Repentance is an attitude. It's not a single act. It's not an act of penance or several acts of penance. It is an attitude. To repent is to take God's point of view instead of one's own. Repentance is not merely a matter of feeling sorry. It is being sorry enough to actually abandon, with God's help, your prior life of sin. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul distinguishes between godly sorrow, which leads to repentance and salvation, and he contrasts that with Worldly sorrow, where you're just sorry, but nothing changes. And that continues you on the path to death. Repentance is a recognition of our guilt before God and a recognition we can only be saved by calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of my favorite examples of repentance in the Bible is that of the tiny tax collector, Zacchaeus. Now, tax collectors were usually dishonest, And they were hated by the people because they were seen as collaborators with the Roman occupiers. In fact, tax collector and sinner were almost synonymous terms in the day of Jesus. So tiny Zacchaeus wants to see the famous Jesus coming by, but he's too small to see over the heads of the people in front of him. So he climbs up in the tree to get a better look at this famous Jesus. Jesus invites him for dinner at his house, and the story continues in Luke 
19. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. I think a lot of you are familiar with it. Luke 19, starting in verse 6, says, So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. He is a tax collector. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. It's a great story. Why did Jesus say that? He says that because he, he recognizes true repentance immediately. Since tax collectors usually overcollected taxes, I did some research on this, due to the government buy, they take a little extra 5 or 10% on the side because people didn't know what the rate was, and they would collect extra. And he had promised in front of everybody, all his friends, to compensate those he had defrauded fourfold. Now think about that. Zacchaeus was going to lose almost all of his wealth that day, either through restitution or charity to the poor. On this day, Zacchaeus repented of his past sins of financial fraud, and he turned from the love of money to the love of God. And he confesses Jesus as his Lord, which means that Jesus will now be the center and the direction of his life. True repentance. Sinner, do not try to clean up your act before repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus says, I have not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 5, verses 32. Let me say that again. Jesus did not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners to repentance. Okay. The time for repentance, when should you do it? You should do it now. Why? Because you never know when one of the tragedies of our fallen world will strike you down, just like the people in Sutherland Springs or the residents of Santa Rosa. As Isaac Watts said, there's no repentance in the grave. You cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may become too late. Who knows when a fire, a gunman, or something else will take your life? Now, if you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you can view death the same way as Billy Graham, who, want, who said, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall be, I will simply have changed my address. I shall be in the presence of God. If you are a believer and want to know more about this repentance, true repentance that leads to salvation, please talk to Oscar, Pastor Jeremy, myself, or the friend you came with today after church. But it's interesting that Jesus does not stop with a call to repent. He makes a third point, and he does it with a parable. 
We are called to repent and bear fruit. Repent and bear fruit. Not only is it urgent to repent, but one should also bear fruit that shows that the repentance is sincere, just as Zacchaeus did. Jesus made this point by telling the parable that we read next. It is in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 6. Luke 13, starting in, at verse 6. And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, it's interesting. Why does Jesus tell this parable right after he's talked about the tragedies? Because they're linked. Almost all commentators say that the two are linked. So Jesus is comparing a believer with a fig tree planted in the vineyard. And he informs us that the owner of the vineyard looks for and expects the presence of fruit on the trees. In this parable, God the Father is the owner of the vineyard. God the Father is the owner. And Jesus is the vine dresser. The fig tree represents those who say they belong in the vineyard. Or in this case, representing the kingdom of heaven. Maybe they have even said the sinner's prayer at some point in their life in the past. But there they are, thinking they belong to the kingdom, but they have borne no fruit. A bad tree, one that fails to bear fruit, will be cut down so as to no longer use up the soil. And this is the point that Jesus is making. And it's the point that John the Baptist made. He commanded the following in Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, and I'll just read it for you. Matthew 3, 8 through 10. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And speaking of God's judgment, the Baptist adds, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay? And the Baptist says that to a group of religious leaders that come up to him. So when Gwen and I bought our house 27 years ago, there was an old orange tree right in the middle of our backyard. But the tree had pretty bad oranges or no oranges a lot of time. Had no fruit. It was ugly and barren and it just took up space. So when we remodeled our backyard, we had that tree cut down. And I think we have a nice backyard now. People have visited our house. We just, but we got rid of that ugly orange tree that was bearing no fruit in the middle of the yard. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. Bad trees will eventually be cut down and cast forever out of the vineyard. And the vineyard represents the kingdom of heaven. Now, in this parable, God, the vineyard owner, shows his mercy 
because he gives the tree time to bear fruit. He's being merciful through time. And the parable shows the devoted care of Jesus, the vine dresser. The vine dresser tells the owner, give me another year and I'll dig around it and put manure on it. And let's see if we can grow some fruit. Now, the fertilizer in the parable, I think, refers mainly to the Holy Spirit. It is by the power of the Spirit who only comes into our life once we place our trust in Jesus that we can overcome sin. Remember, Jesus was greater than John the Baptist because Jesus baptizes his followers with the Holy Spirit. And Peter promises that everyone who repents and receives Jesus receives also the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us lead holier lives. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is a great advantage that believers have vis-a-vis the non-believer in terms of leading a life that is pleasing to God. And in fact, Paul tells Christians in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you. Paul is referring to the inner working of the Holy Spirit that helps us to grow up to become worthy members of the kingdom or the vineyard. Now, the vine dresser uses fertilizer to give vitality to the weak tree, but he also digs around the soil. Have you ever done that? Yeah, you have to, to make the fertilizer work. Gwen and I have learned that through hard experience, that just throwing the fertilizer on, it doesn't any, do any good. You've got to dig around, let dig the fertilizer get in there. In the same way God uses hardships and trials to loosen our hold on this world, and to make room in our hearts for God. Affliction acts like a plowshare that tears around our hearts so that we can fully receive the life of the Spirit. Well, how do we bear fruit? Well, it's interesting that the vine dresser is also the vine. Jesus helps us bear fruit. In John 15, Jesus explains that it is our union with him that gives us the power to bear fruit. In John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, I'll just read them quickly. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains or abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. John 15, 5 through 8. If we remain, we remain, excuse me, we remain or abide in Christ by reading his word, the Bible. We abide in Christ by spending time with him in prayer. We abide in Christ as we spend time, as we are doing this morning, worshiping him and praising him and focusing on him. And we abide in Christ by obeying his commands and emulating his life. Okay, but what is the fruit? What is the fruit that God expects? I'll list five types of fruits along with biblical references. And all I did is I used my Bible software to find the word karpos for fruit in verses 
that are relevant in the New Testament. So first, there is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. A Christian's life should be increasingly characterized by these traits. And they should gradually abandon the traits of their prior lives before they repented, the life that Paul characterizes the life of the flesh. And he gives a list for that. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. What characters is our life? So first, there's the fruit of the Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit given to everyone who truly replants and places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, there's the fruit of right living before God, which the Bible calls righteousness. Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 11 says this, Be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. His command word, be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Growing obedience to God and a growing rejection of sin is the second fruit. Third, there's the fruit of good works. Colossians 1 Verse 10, Colossians 1.10 says this, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. Walk in a manner of the Lord, manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. We should help the poor, serve in our communities, and assist those we can assist. Fourth, there is the fruit this one I was new to me. Fourth, there's the fruit of praise to God. Praise to God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Hebrews 13, verse 15. And it says, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. The fruit of lips that acknowledge God. Remember that God saves us so that we can bring honor and glory to Him. And we do that when we joyfully worship Him and praise Him here on Sunday morning. But the author of Hebrews says we should continually bear this fruit, which to me means he encourages us to praise God in front of others throughout the week, wherever we are. We should praise God for who He is and for what He's done for us, and we should acknowledge Him with our lips with words in front, in front of the people we associate with throughout the week. And that's a fruit. Fifth, but not least, there is the fruit of people saved when we, when we evangelize. The fruit of people who come to Christ. Paul talks about this fruit in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. And he writes about his converts in Thessalonica, and he says about, about them, quote, God chose you as the first fruits 
to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So his converts, he thought of as fruits for the kingdom. So share the gospel so that others you know may come to know Christ. <coughs> okay. But what if you've repented of your sins and you believe in Jesus, but you feel that you are so fruitless compared to the person sitting in the pew next to you? My fruit is not as plentiful or as great as their fruit. I want to offer five words of encouragement. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to help us be fruitful. Remember what Peter says in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the fertilizer or the manure in the parable we were reading earlier in Luke. He helps to give us life, an inward life that glorifies God. Second, remember that Jesus promises that abiding in him will bear fruit. John 15 verse 5 says, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. It is a promise. Number three, remember that Jesus asks that we bear some fruit as opposed to no fruit. It is the barren tree with no fruit that will be cut down and cast out of the vineyard. It is barren, no fruit, representing, and the kingdom, the vineyard represents the kingdom of heaven. Jesus asks that we not remain barren. He does not say that we are to compare the quantity and the quality of our fruit with the fruit of others. Okay? Fourth, remember that your feelings can deceive you. Look at your fruit. Now, good works and fruit do not save us. Only repentance and faith in Jesus Christ can do that. But bearing fruit after we repent of our sins and place our trust in Jesus can make our salvation sure. Not to God, because he already knows your heart. But they can make our salvation sure to us. Look at your fruit. Don't trust your feelings sometimes. And Peter makes this point in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Trust your fruit, not your feelings. Fifth, bearing fruit is a lifelong process. As C.S. Lewis said, quote, True Christians are not sinless, but they do sin less over time. And that has certainly been the case in my life as a Christian over the last 40 years. It's taken this old tree quite a while to produce any fruit. So take heart. A good tree will bear good fruit, and a bad tree will bear bad or no fruit. And eventually, any reasonable owner will cut down a bad tree, as Gwen and I did with that old orange tree in our backyard, and as God will do for those who bear no fruit. Now, in conclusion, people today often don't like to think of themselves as sinners destined for judgment. It's not a very popular notion. But that is how Jesus sees us, and he demonstrates that in Luke 13. And sometimes 
disasters can become wake-up calls. Wake-up calls that cause us to take stock of our lives and hopefully repent. You can use tragedies like these to remind yourself, your friends, and your neighbors of this truth. Remind them of the words of Jesus concerning the temple worshipers who were murdered by Pilate or the workers who were killed by the fallen tower in Jerusalem. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Judgment is coming via death. Repent and bear fruit consistent with repentance. Amen.